0: The care of her was so overwhelming, from a major debulking surgery to frontline chemo to keeping the household running down the track. It was just so overwhelming that I didn't even pick up my guitar. And to be a person who has oriented their whole life around making music, to not even touch it, I mean, I'd see it, but it seems like more of a torture to do a little bit of it than Mm. to do none of it.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. When we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode is brought to you by Aeroflow Urology. As a caregiver, do you struggle knowing how to even start getting your loved one qualified for urology products? Aeroflow Urology can help. Visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-2177. Growing up, singer-songwriter, guitarist, and producer, Kate Schutt says she was electrified by the music of Tina Turner. Kate began playing the guitar and writing songs at age 11. She went on to earn a degree from Harvard, and she's an alumna of Berklee College of Music. After releasing a series of limited edition EPs, she released her albums, No Love Lost and Telephone Games. Kate has received multiple awards for her music, which has been described as having a stripped down intensity. So rarely seen it is startling known as a constant collaborator. She says the thing she cares about most is connecting with people. And until just a few years ago, that often involved jamming with other musicians and performing her music on stage. But those modes of connecting were disrupted when Kate's mother was diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer. Kate stopped touring, moved in with her mother, and became her primary caregiver. She wound up spending four years caring for her mother and writing songs about her mom's journey from diagnosis to death. Kate's album, Bright Nowhere, is a musical reflection on this period of her life, which also inspired her recent TEDx talk titled, A Grief Casserole, How to Help Your Friends and Family Through Loss. Kate Schutt joins us from New York City. Kate, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So to give this some context, I understand you grew up in Chatsford, Pennsylvania, I wonder if you could just share what memories you have of growing up, besides, of course, being consumed by the music of Tina Turner.
0: (laughs) Oh, I had a very wonderful childhood. I spent a lot of time outside. I had two older brothers, so I was the tomboy, tag along little sister, (laughs) and all that implies. We had dogs. We spent, as I said, so much time outside, and I feel like... I was very fortunate to have nature around me and I played sports. I played ice hockey with boys oh, growing wow. up playing on boys' teams uh-huh. <laughs> and
2: you know, such a very
0: active little kid and living in the shadow of my older brothers and idolized them and followed them around and
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so you're the youngest yes i'm the youngest of three total and i like to say i didn't really have any choice on any musical decisions to listen to of course because they were (laughs) old they're they're much older than one is three years older and the the other one is three years older than him so Obviously I was low man on the totem pole I did not get any choice So I grew up listening to Tina Turner was sort of like my thing But lots of classic rock And Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead The Stones That was what I grew up listening to And the music I started playing When I started playing guitar basically
1: Right, you did a series of cover songs Right, yeah Yeah, one of my early records Was a record
0: full of cover tunes And all the bands I played in In elementary school and high school Were all lots of that music Mm -hmm. And really that rock or sensibility is firmly entrenched.
2: Mm-hmm. There's not
0: much jazz as I study and focus on now in my life whenever I play live, that Impulse, you know, you can take the girl out of rock, but you can't take the rock out of the girl. So,
1: <laughs> that's um, so interesting because I get the vibe from you that you know you are mostly jazz and you have your own unique sound. But to me, it's kind of a cross between Cassandra Wilson and Sean Colvin. It's like this really yeah, interesting, that's great that's interesting mix. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. I've never heard, but yeah, I mean, well, Sean Colvin. I mean, I probably
0: had the record that had Shotgun on the down the avalanche. Yeah. That record, mm-hmm. I, I probably listened to that record for all of my. High school years That yeah. that was on repeat To me that's a Desert Island disc Uh
2: huh <laughs>
0: um, Yeah And Cassandra Wilson I mean I have always been A person who played Cover songs And always Messed with them and mm-hmm. so when I heard Blue Light Till Dawn, that album resonated with me. And again, I think that's an that's a desert island
1: disc practically. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's a great combo. Uh-huh. So totally switching gears, fast forward to adulthood and it sounds like you were really close to your parents and especially with your mom. Tell us how you learned about your mom's diagnosis and what was going on in your life.
0: I had moved to New York. Um, I had been living in Canada for a number of years and I had moved back to the States in two thousand ten. And had spent that year, 2010, 2011, just getting my feet under me in the Big Apple. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) it's It's a consuming place and trying to find my way in the music scene here and had been doing that for a little more than a year and making connections and starting to play gigs and all of that kind of stuff. And was really interested in doing some sort of more regular gigging, which in this day and age is really hard to do. And somebody heard me play and reached out to me to suggest a gig over in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a female guitar player, singer to come and do a sort of extended gig at a fancy hotel. Sort of like a cruise ship gig, but not on a cruise ship. And these are things that musicians do sometimes to kind of get your chops together and have a lot of gigs and a lot of playing time in a short period of time. And so Mm -hmm. I was really interested in that. And I auditioned, got the gig, uh, was going to Cutter, so Doha Cutter, and had negotiated my contract, had all that ready to go. Literally went out and bought my wardrobe because it's a different culture than ours and the wardrobe requirement was different. And Mm -hmm. had all that stuff, two guitars packed, wardrobe packed, everything ready to go. Went home to have a final weekend with my parents. I don't remember what days of the week it was, but essentially it was like going home on a Friday and I was leaving on Monday for mm-hmm. at least a month, if not more. Mm-hmm. And I got out of the car and just looked at my mom and I was like, mm. my spidey sense told me <laughs> mm-hmm. something's not right. Something's up. So we went in and they sat me down and my mom and my dad and said, "Well, I've actually been feeling, I haven't been feeling too great for a couple of months. And after trying this and that with my doctor, he finally ordered a CT scan and the results come in sometime this afternoon. And so I said, obviously, my first question was, well, what, what have your symptoms been? And when she said the answer to that question, uh, she basically repeated the same symptoms that her sister, her closest sister, she's one of seven oh,
2: wow. and the
0: next in line, mm-hmm. the next younger than her had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer two years before, sorry, five years before But that aunt of mine, her closest sister, is like a second mother to me. So both my mom and I had been involved in all of her care and everything. She was still alive at this point. And my mom's symptoms were the exact same. So I knew the Mm. second she said it. And of course, she probably knew too, but was hoping against hope that it wasn't ovarian cancer. So indeed, while I was spending a couple of hours there, the CT scan came in and it showed a tumor the size of a grapefruit in her abdomen and the doctor wanted to operate immediately so it wasn't a choice obviously everything in life is a choice most things in life are choices but my experience of what happened next was it was not a choice I just said okay please take me back to the train station I'm gonna get on my train I'm gonna go back to New York I'm gonna break my
1: contract unpack repack and I'll be back tomorrow sometime and that's what I did did you have any idea of how long this would last? I mean, so much of caregiving is like, you, you lose their sense of time and you have no idea what's gonna happen next.
0: Yeah, I did not have any idea. Of course, as you said, we had an appointment with the doctor. Well, mom and I had to decide what to do, You know, when would the operation be, et cetera. So we, we tried to wrap our mind around the new reality and then make the plans about the surgery and then somewhere in there within less than five days we had a meeting with the oncologist and i was able to ask the oncologist listen I know you don't like to do these kinds of things. I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire, but you need to tell me, you know, what are we looking at here? And I'm pretty sure he punted until after the surgery and they could biopsy it. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer to that came after she got out through the surgery and they biopsied. And it turned out that it was ovarian carcinosarcoma, which is basically garden variety of ovarian cancer's carcinoma. You don't really ever want to have that word sarcoma attached mm-hmm. to anything to do with you. Uh-huh. Um, In any part of life, in any part of cancer or anything, it's sort of like my understanding is the cancer is mutated again. It's a rarer and more aggressive form of ovarian cancer. Uh And her sister, I'm getting a bit into the weeds here, but I promise Mm. I'll pull myself out. Her sister had the more garden variety Uh kind. So we sort of knew what that was going to look like because we had been living that. And we were hoping against hope that she would get carcinoma, the sort of more garden variety. Mm-hmm. That that's what the tumor would present as. And instead, it, the reality was it she got dealt the bad hand. At the time, 2011, they weren't really studying it. There's no point. It's a more aggressive form, and the oncologist just said, "Listen, we don't really study this. We basically treat it like the garden variety kind," and we cross our fingers and hope it works. And it either does or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that question to him about what's this gonna look like came after the biopsy came in and I just said to him, I know you guys probably don't like this but I want to hear what it's gonna look like. Mm -hmm. And after pulling his teeth, Basically, he said maybe a year of treatment that hopefully she responds to, and then probably a declining year.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And that was very different from the sort of prognosis that my aunt had gotten with yeah. the more garden variety kind. That was, you know, you'll probably respond to carboplatin, taxol, to all the aluminum-based drugs, and you could get seven, you could get ten, you could get twelve. We could hit it so hard you knock it totally back.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it was a very different experience than hers is, I guess, why I am spent so much time saying that. We kind of knew what the landscape was going to look like, and we were hoping it would be like that because my aunt was still alive. She was living a very high quality of life. And unfortunately, the answer was, mm, it's not going to look that good
1: and was your dad around who else in the family was around at this point Particip- my dad was around uh-huh. yeah my dad was my wingman
0: but the most polite way i can put it is he's an old school dad um and well, you- this is a complicated and big endeavor to yeah. try and keep her alive and go down this road and you need someone energetic who's going to chase down all the questions and all the answers you know what i mean and so i stepped in to do that but i couldn't have done what i did without him and He provided a sort of foil to my role Uh with her.
1: (laughs) The reason I ask, I'm interested in another side of the question, which is related to my own experience of my mother being hospitalized. Mm. She had a a lumbar surgery, and my dad and I visited Mm. her in the hospital. And my dad was so, uh, in a way, debilitated. I I could tell I had to be the one in charge. He was just Mm -hmm. thrown for such a loop. And he was a really, you know, otherwise very capable, powerful guy. And he was old school as well, probably a little older than your Mm -hmm. dad, because I'm older than you, but... So that was really shocking for me to see. Of course, I went right past it and did what I needed to do. But I wonder right. if your dad had a similar reaction. Because he was old school and like, well, what's happening to my wife sort of thing.
0: Yeah, no, I think he's he's quite a resilient soul. Mm-hmm. And I think probably my experience of that has been since she's died. The grief process is where he's become more unmoored. You know, because he is she's yeah. not around, and yeah. she was such a rock for yeah. everybody and and it gave him such a focus, caring for her, so that's been my experience, but as you said, I went right past it because I needed to, and I needed to show up and figure this out like when you finally had a chance to process that. That must have been quite a wondrous, and not in a good way, I'm saying that, but like, wow, you know, yeah. isn't grief, isn't it interesting the way it can affect a person?
1: Oh, yeah. And were your brothers local? Do they live on these coasts? My oldest brother lives with his family in
0: Wilmington, Delaware, which is 10 minutes away from my parents' house. And my middle brother lives just outside of San Francisco with his wife and kids. So I had one brother close by and one brother across the country.
1: Okay. Okay. What was it like for you to be home again? And I know that artists are used to spending a lot of time alone creating, but this experience of being alone was very different. How did Mm -hmm. you connect? How connected did you feel with the outside world? And what was it like to be home again? For a prolonged period of time, I should say. Hmm. It's a great, amazing question. I feel like, as I said, it really wasn't a
0: choice. And there I was. And this was no doubt what I would be doing until she shuffled off her mortal coil. Mm. So there was this sense of I'm on this train and I'm going wherever this train is taking me. And not having any clue of that destination. So really not thinking about, about that sort of In a total way, and you just, as you know, you just can't. You're so busy. But I think the hardest thing, as the years wore on, was I just did not recognize myself.
2: Mm. What do you mean? mean I
0: did not. I did not pick up my guitar for the first year and a half. The care of her was so overwhelming you know, from a major debulking surgery to frontline chemo to just keeping the household running down the track to getting all the answers I could get about what was going on and what is the best way to proceed and all of that. It was just so overwhelming that I didn't even pick up my guitar. So to be a person who has oriented their whole life around making music, to not even touch it, I mean, I'd see it and I'd just be like, I I just it seemed like more of a torture to do a little bit of it than Mm. to do none of it Mm -hmm. and I I was so overwhelmed I just couldn't figure out how to fit it into my day all I had every day is about an hour free so I needed to go work out because that's how
1: I process my stress is through athletics and, and working out and that was the thing that I could do so what was a typical day like for you if there is such a thing
0: you know, I'd say that first year and a half
1: was get up, go work out right away,
0: come back. She'd be waking up, maybe helping her get up, whatever that meant, whether it was recovering from the surgery, that was sort of a different kind of thing than frontline chemo, but you know, helping her get going, trying to get some food into her. If it was a chemo day, preparing that morning or even the night before to go sit five or six hours in the chemo suite. So bringing snacks, bringing reading material, bringing all the things she needed to feel comfortable, all the things I needed to feel comfortable while she was sitting there for five hours, Uh all the things my dad needed to feel comfortable. So if it was that, that's pretty routine. But then coming home from that, you know, getting the meds organized, figuring out how to get some more food in her, figuring out at this point, especially in that first year and a half, just trying to understand what was happening Uh and trying to navigate the choices you had. I mean, I'm skipping over a whole section of time, which I sometimes forget, which is like, hey, how did we pick the hospital and the oncology team? I mean, we had the luxury to say, well, we're not sure we're going to choose the closest place. So we spent a little time right in the beginning before she had the debulking surgery. Are we going to go to Penn? Are we going to go to Johns Hopkins? Mm -hmm. We had ruled out places further away. And then she made the decision to stay at home at Christiana Hospital because she had raised lots of money for them. She had done lots of volunteer work for that organization. And also she wanted it to be easy on us, on my dad and I. And that was a brave decision. And I think she made the right decision. As the years wore on, as we were lucky enough to get more time, I was so thankful that our drive to the hospital was 20 minutes and not two hours.
1: Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So, you know,
0: and then try to get some more food in her and then put her in bed and face plant on my own bed.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm only laughing because it's so familiar. <laughs> right. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's yeah, just like it's laughable like I mean, because what else can you do? You lose all sense of time. You're You're in a time warp. It's crazy. Yeah. I read that when your mom got yeah. sick, you knew what to do, but you didn't always know what to say. You found a right. way to communicate with her by singing instead of talking. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that and the power of music to heal and connect when conversations fail us.
0: Sure. What a big topic. I guess I would start by saying the basis for this in, in my relationship to my mother was when she got the diagnosis of ovarian carcinosarcoma, stage 3C. I was there when the doctor walked in, thankfully. And had the diagnosis. And I just turned to her when he left and said, look, we're not going to mince words. This is going to kill you. Whether it kills you a year from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be the thing that kills you. So let's let's just not mince words. And my mom was not a person who minced words. So she nodded and we cried some more and, and went on. But that was where we started from. And I'm very lucky. I know, I know now mm-hmm. that I'm very lucky mm-hmm. to have a mother who was willing to look at her mortality so straight on. Mm -hmm. And so everything that happened came from that in the sense that I would talk about everything with her, even though I was scared of a lot of it, Mm -hmm. but I just, forced myself to start conversations like, who do you want to spend your time with? Who don't you want to spend your time with? Mm -hmm. What do you want to spend your time doing? What don't you want to spend your time doing? What is the most important thing to you that if you got nothing else done between now and when you died, that you would be happy you did that? And so I'd ask those kinds of very nitty gritty practical questions to questions like, where do you think you're going to go when you die? What's the thing you're gonna miss the most?
1: And how does she respond to some saying, of those questions? Sorry to interrupt she, you. Yeah, no, she was amazing. I mean, she embraced it. Did she actually she tell wa- you where she thought she was gonna go after she died?
0: She was raised Episcopalian, but she wasn't that wasn't a big part of her life. Mm-hmm. So she she believes she went somewhere. Mm-hmm. She wasn't sure where. She wasn't sure in what form, Um, you know, but she didn't think I'm dead and that's it. Uh But this conversation, my experience of it and our experience of it was it spooled out over years. You know, it wasn't like we had this conversation once and we were like, check, done. (laughs) We would have the conversation and we'd be like, "Hmm, I don't know. Or then I'd say, I'd introduce her to the work of Joseph Campbell and say, Mm -hmm. hey, let's watch some Joseph Campbell videos.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: we'd watch one of the great Bill Moyer's. Joseph Campbell Mm -hmm. conversations.
2: Mm -hmm. And then
0: we'd sit there afterwards and have a huge conversation about maybe heaven is actually here. Heaven, quote unquote, I'm using that in quotes, like maybe that place where you are the best expression of who you are, the thing that resonates with your soul the most, that's the available to you here and now. And if that's the case, where would that be for you, mom? And she had a great love of Mount Desert Island, Maine. And had spent most of her life going up there in the summer times and that's where we went in as kids
2: and Mm -hmm. and
0: we still go up there every summer and Mm -hmm. that is like her, to use Joseph Campbell's words, bliss station. So, you know, (laughs) what we identified is standing on the top of a mountain, having hiked up at one of Acadia's mountains in Maine that's heaven on earth, that's available to you here and now. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of questions were happen over and over again, because I was with her and with her and with her and willing to bring them up again. And as I've tried to point out in other things I've written about this experience,
1: you really only get that when you spend
0: day after day after day, and you can't
1: plan it. Yeah, that's not something that's going to happen on a weekend trip to your folks and then go back to your life. Correct. Or it might, but it's not the same kind of experience
0: that she and I had where I call it, it's like I was fishing. Like I'd put these little questions about mystery and wonder and why we're here and what's the meaning of life and what matters to you in your life. Like those were fishing lures and I'd put them on the line and then Mm -hmm. I'd throw them out into the waters. And the waters would be, for example, driving to chemo. Uh-huh. And then we'd have five hours of chemo and then we'd drive home and she'd be conked out for a couple of hours in the death-like sleep of a person who's just had chemo yeah. and wake up and maybe while I was fixing dinner and she was sitting at the dinner table with her head in her hands just trying to have one spark of energy. you know. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of things would just bob around in this big pool of time mm-hmm. that we were lucky enough to have. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what your original question was. <laughs> I'm just going to tell
1: you. <laughs> I that when your mom got sick, you knew what to do, but you didn't always know what to say, and you found a way to communicate mm, with yeah, her by yeah. singing.
0: So I found myself coming around to all these questions over and over again with her, and some of them having answers to, and some of them not. And some of them were questions that kept reverberating in my mind about, for example, where you go when you die. Mm-hmm. Starting that conversation with her And trying to get to a satisfying answer for her made me wonder, what do I believe about that? I don't know what I believe. Mm -hmm. And one of the places I figure those kinds of questions out for myself is in songwriting. And so the song Bright Nowhere, which is the name of the new record, came out of that exact conversation with my mother. Where do you go when you die? Mm -hmm. Us talking that over and discussing it and then me feeling like I didn't have an answer to it myself and then going down the rabbit hole of, what do I think about that? And let me look. Let me look inside myself and figure out what I think about that. But that's really a process for me of reading all my heroes and touchstones and looking at that. And so that song draws a lot on King Lear and the actual phrase "bright nowhere" comes a line from a Seamus Heaney poem that's actually a sort of an elegy to his. I think it's his grandmother. To his own Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's my process and that's an encapsulation of basically how it was that I started to write all these songs to her. I would want to communicate something to her or to myself about Mm -hmm. this experience. And the way I know how to do that, one of the ways I do that is through song. And in a purely therapeutic way, because she really felt guilty about this happening to her and my sacrifices and my decision to do this and take care of her in her life. And no matter how many times I told her, this is what I want to be doing, this is what we are doing, it was really hard to get that through to her. And my last ditch effort was, I'll write a song about it, and then she'll know. Because if she sees me taking some of my precious free time, this was obviously a year and a half later when she finally went into remission and I had some time to myself. Mm-hmm. She sees me taking that time to write something to her about this. She will understand, I hope. Mm-hmm. And if she doesn't, then it's a lost cause. You know? Yeah. And Nothing I Won't Bear was that song. That was like the second or third song I wrote, which was like, listen, this is all I want to be doing. Doctor, load it up your life went through. halfway up mountain, yeah you what you could do. And when she heard me play that song, we never had
2: to have that conversation again.
1: It was done. She understood. That was a clip from the demo version of Kate's song, Nothing I Won't Bear, which you can hear in its entirety, along with more of her music by going to soundcloud.com slash kateshot. We'll be back after this message. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Aeroflow Urology. Are you spending too much time struggling with insurance companies and doctors to get products for your parent, grandparent, or loved one? Aeroflow Urology helps caregivers like you enjoy more and worry less by helping qualify your loved one for incontinence products through insurance. Aeroflow's assigned continence care specialist works directly with the physician, provider, and patient to ensure your loved one finds the best products suited for their unique needs. To start the conversation, visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-446 about that TED talk you did that fairly recently it was in November right yeah I don't, I don't think I've ever seen such an emotional TED talk least of all one which starts with the presenter singing acapella um I was really worried for you because you were it looked like on the yeah. verge of tears and I thought oh I better get a box of Kleenex um mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to be really I was on the verge of tears oh my I God. barely I, I was so worried for you. Yeah, I barely held it together. So, tell us about the evolution of the talk and why it was important to you to change the conversation around death and dying, which is essentially what this TED talk is about from what I could tell. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My experience of being with my mother for that long It was such a bizarre experience, the way that the world related to me while I was doing that. The way people showed up, the way people didn't show up, the way uh, I felt, as I said, like I do not recognize myself. I am this person who is, this is all I do and who I am, I just don't recognize. That's not a judgment against me. I'm just becoming a person I don't recognize. You know, there was, it was just such a weird experience. It's like going to another planet. That's Christopher Hitchens meant the landscape of the ill. Or you're just on this other planet. And mm-hmm. it became really important to me as it wore on that I do something to help people understand how to relate to a person going through this experience, because people really don't know how to relate. Mm-hmm. Only the people who've been through it know how to relate, and myself included. It's a side note. I had once my mom got diagnosed, I literally had to go back to friends of mine from college whose parents were ill and dying while I was in college and apologize profusely Mm -hmm. and say, I'm so sorry. I was completely out to lunch. I had no clue and no experience from which to really understand what you were going through. And I'm really sorry I wasn't there for you Mm. because it must have been so difficult. And it was really important to me to try at least, to find a way to to communicate to people that it's not hard. It's not hard. The person going through that experience, the person doing the caregiving, living in this alternate universe, we just need a few bones thrown our way and we can continue to muster the strength to do the job we need to do. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And it's really not that hard. Mm -hmm. And really what's happening from my perspective or from, from what I know about the world, and it could be wrong, but what I saw was People were just letting their heads and their voices in their head get in the way of just doing what felt right. By that, I mean just sending a text and saying, how are you? You don't need to respond. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Or, hey, I'm bringing over a bag of groceries. Maybe you just went grocery shopping, but I I thought you might need some milk. Or... Do your dogs need to be walked? Does your dad need to be walked? You know, like, (laughs) uh, these things that aren't hard, but what happens is that people just get in their head and this vortex of voices like, oh, I'm intruding, oh, I'm not close enough to them, oh, I'm not a good enough friend, I'm sure it's a bad time. They start listening to these voices that aren't true and real, and then they do nothing And then both of us are left in a weird place.
1: Yeah, you're right. You have expectations. Tell me your experience. Well, my father died suddenly, and so I had immediate reaction from folks and it's really interesting because there's no good death. I don't necessarily believe right. that you know a long illness is any better and or easier to deal with than a sudden death. But my friends texted me and I, I was living in l a and my parents were outside of d c where I grew up, and so he was dead before I had a chance to see him. It happened suddenly, although I'd spoken oh, with yeah. him on I'd spoken with him on the phone yeah. literally three hours before he died, so wow, yeah, I left. Uh, LA at like 730 in the morning the first flight out. And the friends I had who I was close to all texted me and said, to their credit, thinking of you, no need to respond exactly the way you would want them to respond. And then when I ultimately moved back into my childhood home, as I made a similar decision Mm -hmm. to you, and I drove across the country and um, spoke with a couple of people on the drive, although most of the time I was just in a fog and sort of yeah hypnotized and and it was a good experience because i i needed that time but you know i i think that you're speaking to the unfortunate reality that most people want death to occur off stage and don't really want to deal with it and talk about it because it's not a part of our culture. We are so Mm -hmm. youth-oriented and prolonging living at any cost Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we really have a Mm -hmm. hard time accepting that there is going to be an end, regardless of how it happens. But just to go back to the talk a minute, how did you shape it?
0: How I shaped that talk was, first, I had a great coach. I have to give a shout out to a guy named Ryan Hildebrandt, who helped me put my talk together. And he gave me some great advice in the beginning. And he said, what's your idea? And I said, well, this is kind of what I'm thinking, that impassioned plea I just talked to you about. Uh (laughs) This is what my experience. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's what I'm thinking about. And that's what I'd like to talk about. And he said, well, go out and talk to people. Go out and talk to people about what happens when someone they know goes through loss and what their experience is when that happens. Hmm. Hmm. And so I dutifully did what my coach said and went out and started Having conversations with friends and acquaintances and people at coffee shops and just said, hey, when someone you know is going through loss, so it's actually kind of too removed, you know, like a friend Mm -hmm. of yours mother dies. Mm -hmm. What do you do? And I would shut up and just start listening.
2: Mm.
0: And what I heard was exactly what I suspected I would hear. Oh, I I never know what to do. I feel like I'm going to intrude. I mean, this is their language. I think I interviewed by the end of the time over 20 people Mm -hmm. and just wanted to hear so that when I talked about my experience, I could use language that really resonated and really when people heard the talk, they would say, yeah, that's me. And then from there to fast forward through it, started cobbling together a script. I knew I wanted to include the songs. Mm -hmm. That was a definite must. So I started to try and figure out which songs I could weave in that wasn't so out of the blue what helped me tell the story that was quite tricksy to figure that out. Then I, at one point was going to play and sing, play guitar and sing. Mm -hmm. And at that point I had a pretty good script, but I really, as I rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and I started playing it for a couple of other people or doing it for a couple of other people, I felt like the guitar was getting between me and them and my experience of being present, and being with them as I went through this talk. Hmm. And so I just became clear I had no choice but to, do it a because there was gonna be no way I could figure out a way in which some Deus Ex Machina would come down and hand me my guitar and you know, like there was there was no way this was not gonna get between my heart and their heart. And I think you made the I right wanted. choice. I wanted it. Yeah. And so you know I just had to lean into my heroes, like my Angelou. If you can go YouTube my Angelou and She'll bust out into song in the middle of a speech at the Library of Congress or something like that. And it's so arresting and powerful. Well, she used to be a a a lounge singer, right?
1: (laughs) Wasn't she? Exactly. Yeah. And it's so powerful. So I just had to call upon her spirit
0: and just believe that no matter what I was feeling that day, and no matter where I was and how shaky my voice and teary my eyes, that the emotion mattered more than whether I hit
1: a right note. Mm hmm. And what are you hoping that folks take away from that TED Talk? Practically, that somebody
0: I know is going through a rough time, and it doesn't have to be a death. It can be, I lost my job. It can be, I lost my house. It's also a death, obviously. And you and they, you, me, know you have a little toolbox, three things that you can do to make that person feel better and to feel seen and heard. That's it. I mean, that's ultimately what I want. If it goes on to do anything else, that would be gravy. But ultimately what I want is when someone is in that experience, they think to themselves, not, oh, I don't know what to do, or I feel in, well, they're actually, they probably will think I'm going to intrude. And I want them to think, yeah, but I saw that TED talk and it said to do it anyway. Uh And so I'm just going to drop something off and I'm just going to shut off that voice for a minute and go do
2: something.
1: And my
0: experience since it's been out is I've gotten overwhelming responses, everything from... It really resonated with me. I had the same experience you did when I was caring for my mom. I felt like I was underwater. I felt like, where is everyone? I've always been terrified. I'd never have known what to do, but I saw your talk and my best friend's mom just died and I reached out to him immediately and I sent them something to eat. Uh-huh. And I never would have
1: done that before. Kate, earlier you said that you didn't recognize yourself during this time, sort of along those lines. I wondered what you learned about yourself from this experience Mm. and how your idea Mm. about who you are changed, if at all. Mm. (laughs) I didn't know where to start. (laughs) Uh, I learned
0: that it was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was the most unbelievable privilege getting really choked up Uh, it was the most unbelievable privilege to accompany someone from their life to their death and especially that someone she was very as I said it was remarkable to watch a person embrace every question that that calamity asks Mm -hmm. she didn't look away from any of it and that is such a rare quality yeah and i was so privileged to spend that time with her and to go down that road with her to ask her those questions to ask us those questions ask myself those questions
2: mm-hmm.
0: and just to be in the questions with her as she was struggling with them
2: mm-hmm.
0: and wondering about what is my life worth you know did i make a difference mm-hmm. what kind of difference did i make you know like what do i want people to remember about me Who am I? I mean, these are fundamental questions that she needed to wrestle with. Mm. And to be there with a person asking themselves those questions fearlessly over and over again is quite remarkable. And a person being open to that and to being open to look outside their conditioning, you know, not just look to the church, look to things I would suggest to her. Let's read Joseph Campbell. let's watch Joseph Campbell. Let's think about how a Buddhist might think about this. Let's read King Lear and talk about it. Let's look across time and space to how other people have faced these questions.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just a privilege, and I guess what I learned you know about myself is that even though it was the hardest thing I've ever done, I would do it again in a heartbeat that man, you can do
1: some really hard things. <laughs> you can do some really hard things. <laughs> Yeah, you really find out what you're capable of. That's for sure. Yeah. Did it change the way you live your life? Absolutely. I mean, I am not the same person. Hmm. I'm not the same person. How are you different? Uh, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm torturing you. No, you guys, this, this <laughs> is life. This is real. It's not a torture to cry. It's a, it's a really, okay, good, good.
0: Um, how am I different? I'm much more patient. I'm much more... Willing to live with the questions, with these own questions still very much present in my life, what makes a good life, what is important in the end, Mm -hmm. who is important in the end, how do you maintain those important relationships, what makes you feel alive, Mm -hmm. and why do you spend any time not doing things that make you feel alive. Why do you spend time doing things other than that? Mm-hmm. And not that life should be one giant amusement park ride, but, you know, what is the balance of <laughs> yeah. the things that you need to do in order to be a person in the world? And what keeps your soul from rotting <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or dying? You know, and if, what is that balance? And if it's not feeling good, what are you doing about it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it doesn't have to be perfect. Life is not black and white. That's a big one that I really see now, that it's it's such a journey. Some days you're lying in bed all day, and some days you feel okay. I mean, you know, being with a person who is going through that much physical change gave me new understanding and a real deep understanding of being okay with anything,
2: mm-hmm. being
0: okay with wherever you are. I mean, I don't have kids, so I can imagine that this is what a parent feels like, and this is what I see my friends who have kids and obviously have six nieces and nephews. So I've seen some of it from the outside and experienced mm-hmm. some of it. But I think it's probably very similar to that experience, the juice, the real reality of living.
1: Mm-hmm. So what are your days like now? What are you up to?
0: It was for a while trying to finish this record. Mm-hmm. And that was all last year, basically. And creating this amazing experience for the music to live in. By that, I mean, I didn't just hire a producer willy-nilly. I didn't um, Mm -hmm. hire musicians willy-nilly, like really working to create an incredible group of people that would really get this music, really get on board for what this was about. Mm -hmm. And that started with finding Rob Mounsey, the producer, and creating the container, so to speak, for this record. And then from there, very deliberately choosing the players. And then when we once we started recording, I would start every recording session giving what I, what we now have come to jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, referring to as the preamble, like, this is the music, this is why I wrote it. Where has Lost shown up in your life? Tell me about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How can you bring that experience into this music that we're going to create in an hour or two? and really inviting the players to bring the people they've loved and lost or were in the process of losing, for their spirits to be there and to be with us, to be present while we made this music. And and that was a very deliberate thing that we did every time. We were working with a new set of musicians, and every time a new engineer came on board and all of that, And I really kept my eye on that ball as this project unfolded. And that was a beautiful thing that Rob and I created together, and now we have it. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is I haven't put out a record since 2009 and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the world's different and we're trying to figure out the right way to put this music into the world and what that's going to look like and who's going to help us. And mm-hmm. that's the next step. So that's what I'm spending my days doing mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. You said and that- I'm also, as you probably I'm read, to- a, a life coach. I mean, I do yeah. coaching for other people. So yeah. I spend
1: one day a week doing that. hmm that's really wonderful. You've said that these songs function as a kind of handbook for caring mm-hmm. for the sick and dying, but you didn't set out to write a handbook. Is it possible you yep. inadvertently created a different kind of handbook, maybe a songbook for grief? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you That's like It's interesting. I've never thought that. Well, there you go. Awesome. Just take it and run with yeah, it. I love you it. know, I can be your awesome. consultants if you need be. Yeah, please. Um, how did making this album make you a better musician? You wrote this on your website. I'm wondering how it made you a better musician. And If you think your music has changed from this experience.
0: It definitely made me a better musician. Definitely made me a better songwriter in the sense that it's really hard to write more than one song that has to do with death. (laughs) I mean, First of all, there's there's the voices in your head that think, who the hell wants to listen to more than one song that has to do with death? So um, just getting rid of that voice and and getting over that voice takes Mm -hmm. a lot. And also the kinds of songs, the topics I wanted to write about For example, a song called You More Than Me, which is a song I wanted to write about basically that moment when the doctor came in and we were like, what's he going to say? Is it going to be garden variety ovarian cancer, which gives us a little more hope, or is it going to be carcinosarcoma? And we're waiting and he tells us it's carcinosarcoma and it's about that moment of getting that bad news. It could be any bad news, but that moment of bad news and the lyrics are his words, they stung we were roped and hung, but you more than me, more than me. Mm. You know, doctor had gone, we were left alone. You more than me, more than me. And then the chorus is, I can't imagine how you must feel. Though I try to put myself in your place. I press my heart to your heart, my face to your face. The unbroken expanse, the unbridgeable space. Mm. To write that chorus took me three years. Oh, wow. Four years to try and figure out how to write it. And so how did it make me a better songwriter? How do you figure out how to write something that's unwritable? Yeah. (laughs) That's how you become a better songwriter. You try to put into words something that seems impossible at the outset. Mhm. That's just a minor example. Um so and I think it called on me to write about so many things that at the outset you would say how am I going to write a song about this? I just don't know. And the other thing I would say is in terms of musicianship, everyone who heard this music as it was going along, including my mom, she heard a number of these songs before oh, wow. she died, mm-hmm. which is yeah, a whole other topic, but said, you know, these songs are beautiful. And when I started thinking about putting them together in an album, they said, yeah, solo guitar and voice. I mean, they're so so personal. Just make a solo guitar and voice album. And I was like, no, I hear it differently than that. And to continue to be a stand for hearing it differently than that and continuing to look for the producer that got it and wanted to go on that journey with me Mm -hmm. taught me a lot about blanket perseverance, but also a particular vision that I was after and that I could achieve it.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: then just the whole process of working with the level of musicians that I did. Rob is just, I can't wax rhapsodic enough about him. (laughs) He is one of the greatest living producer, arrangers, musicians on the planet. I can't say enough about him and getting to spend a whole year with him making a record trusting him, doing that. It was just like getting two master's degrees. It's priceless. Mm -hmm. So the level of musical growth I went on by insisting that this project, by what you're going to hear, it's sounding like that, to me feels like I went and got a PhD. Wow. Just being around these people and these souls. And then also showing up as a person who would get in front of four or five musicians she doesn't know who are some of the best people on the planet on their instruments and be like, excuse me, I want to tell you a little story about where this music came from. And
1: uh-huh. I, I had to step into a big role there. Yeah, it was very brave.
0: And that took a lot. And that's something I worked on a lot with my life coach. I mean, he, you know, I have to give credit where it's due, is that he helped me craft that, mm-hmm. find the courage to do that and to be a stand for that affecting the music.
1: Mm-hmm. And he was right. We were right. It did. Mm-hmm. So, what do you do that gives you joy these days? Mm. Play my guitar,
0: mm-hmm. um, see my friends. Really show up for a handful of really close friends.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's really important to me, and I've. I mean, I've always had a lot of friends, and I would say I, I hope that people would say, "Yes, yeah, she shows up." But really, showing up, showing up for myself, gives me joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I put so much of myself and what I wanted on hold yeah and had to defer yeah. that I'm really learning how to lean into self-care and what that looks like for me now in my life. And that's been interesting and and I'm finding a lot of joy and peace in meditation and nature. That's always a touchstone for me Mm -hmm. and my partner. I have a great partner. Mm -hmm. She lives in San Diego, so we do the long distance thing. But we met when my mom was sick. So to finally have some time to really be with her and attend to her and Mm -hmm. show up, Mm -hmm. show up any way I wanted versus Mm -hmm. in a very limited way. And she was amazing through that. And actually now her mom is in decline. So now I can pay it back. I can be there for her and that gives me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. And just seeking. I mean, I'm a seeker by nature and mm-hmm. feeling like I have a little bit more time to seek whatever that means, you mm-hmm. know, seeing art, writing songs, scratching some itches or following some breadcrumbs.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> mm. Wherever they lead. Well, I think we could continue yeah. this for a while, but I'm going to wind it down. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to share before we close?
0: Yeah, my thought is I'd love to get to know more of your story and I didn't want to ask you too many questions, because I sensed that perhaps it would slow things down, but uh, I'm more interested in other people's experience at this point. You know, I want to see where the commonalities are, how things were similar or different, and really hear what it was like for them, because there's so much beauty in that, in the particularities of people's experience.
1: We've been speaking with award-winning singer, songwriter, guitarist, and producer Kate Shutt about her experience of caring for her mother as the two of them journeyed through her mom's diagnosis and death from ovarian cancer. We'll have links on the AgeWise website to Kate's website, where you can learn more about her work, and watch her TED Talk titled, A Grief Casserole, How to Help Your Friends and Family Through Loss. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show, uh, for your advocacy work, and for your powerful and really lovely music. Thanks, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm on Twitter at Jana Panaridis, and as always, you can leave comments on the AgeWise website. That's a g e w y z dot com. Or you can let me know what you think about the show, ask questions, and even suggest storylines by sending an email to Jana at AgeWise dot com. I'm Jenna Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.